raise your hand if you've ever heard of Venus or Serena Williams. Anybody heard that name? Hey, listen to this. If you've never heard that name, would you just raise your hand? Yeah, no cave dwellers. Everybody's heard of them, right? Uh, tennis royalty between them. They've got 30 Grand Slam uh, singles titles, another 14 doubles titles, not to mention their victories at the Olympics. Total combined earning of somewhere north of $135 million. They're getting by all right, all right? Gonna be a good Christmas at their house. Well, there's a new movie out starring Will Smith. It's called King Richard, and it tells the story of kind of their journey to the top, and specifically their father's role uh, in that journey. And so the movie highlights Richard and uh, his determined plan to help both of his daughters succeed. Now, if you've not seen the movie, you want to see it, a uh, little spoiler, so earmuffs, you know, whatever you, you want to hear that. Uh, so here's kind of the gist of what happens. So throughout the movie, Richard would do some unorthodox things. Uh, several points, he turned down millions of dollars from sponsors uh, because he didn't trust their motives. Uh, there were lots of times that trainers and coaches would beg him to let the girls play in some junior tournaments, and he just said, no, we're not doing that. It's not a part of our plan. He made sure their education came first, and uh, he only let them turn pro when he determined it was the exact right time to do that. In early parts of the movies, uh, Richard would drive the girls to practice in an old VW van, like the you know, flat front, one of those deals. And in the back of the van, there was a homemade sign they would hang up, and it said this, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. In other words, Richard was basically saying, hey, good luck often looks a lot like hard work and careful planning. And so he had a plan for his guy. I'm not saying he was father of the year. If you watch that movie, you know a little bit of the story. But he said, hey, I, I want to set in motion a course of events. And at the very least, I want to be intentional with the end game in mind. Now, think of how much planning we do to pull off a successful holiday season. Think of how much planning and crafting and that goes into planning a vacation or a, a trip or some kind of experience away. And listen, those, those are not wrong things. Uh, hospitality is a biblical virtue. Times away of rest and renewal with your family are gifts from God, not idols to discard. But here's what I want us to center on. That the most important endeavor of our lives, joining in the gospel movement, the expansion of the gospel both to our neighbors and to the nations, should involve some intentionality and some front-end planning as well. In other words, we should embrace the mindset of intentionally training to be used of God as opposed to just trying really hard should the occasion arise. That, that's what the church is. It is Training Camp 101. And so if you've got your phones, your Bibles, your tablets, your, whatever you're using this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 13 as we continue our series called The Movement, this idea of training ourselves to actually be used in the mission. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and last week we got to this pivotal moment uh, where Paul and his friend Barnabas were commissioned or sent out to take the gospel to some unreached people. The, the laying on of the hands, they said, hey, we externally affirm this inward call of God on your life to do this. And so they set sail on their boat, and they have somewhat of a plan of where they're going and, and what they're going to do, and to take themselves to the gospels to people who've never heard. They, so they've got a plan in mind. They, they've been equipped They've been called of God, they've been affirmed, confirmed by the church, they've committed Jesus, and now they're faithfully going out into the unknown. A little mystery, right? And so as they go out, and as we go out, uh, we need to plan to be prepared for the tough journey ahead of pointing people towards Jesus, uh, and, and with this realization, their hearts 
are naturally pointed towards sin and self-righteousness. That's why disciple-making is so hard. We say, hey, point your life toward Jesus, but the natural bent of all of our hearts is not towards Jesus. It's away from Him and towards sin and self-righteousness. And, and so because that tension is there and disciple-making is hard, you've got to prepare yourself spiritually and practically that there will be difficulties in the journey of following Jesus. And here's why that's so important to have that mindset on the front end. I promise you, you don't want to wait till you get to a discouraging place in the journey of joining Jesus to decide at that very moment, at the toughest part of the journey, and ask yourself, is this really worth it? Can I just let you know a little secret? Over the last 20 years, I've resigned on a couple Mondays in my office. Do you know what I'm talking about? There have been some rough weeks or some things going on. I thought, you know, is this even worth it? And, and here's the reality. Listen, if you're going to make disciples, you've got to decide on the front end as well. This is worth it, and so I'm going to reorient my life towards this endeavor on the front end. Okay, so Acts chapter 13. Let's look this morning at verses 13 through 16. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos to come to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. What? But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went to the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then uh, beginning verse 17 on, Paul's about to preach his uh, very first sermon that's recorded in Scripture. And, and if we were to read that whole sermon from verse 17 on, you would find out it's about a minute in length. Now some of you right now, the wheels are turning, you say, hey, amen. If a one-minute sermon was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for Liberty Heights, praise God, right? But before you get too legalistic, most scholars would say this is just a summation of what Paul taught. Certainly Paul had so much more on his heart uh, in the journey than, than one minute worth of material. But, but here's what I want you to notice. That right before he launches into this, this sermon, uh, I want you to see some practical things that Paul did and some challenges he faced and some of the spiritual and practical realities you and I have to embrace if we're going to faithfully continue in the movement of carrying the gospel to our neighbors and to the nation. So what does it look like based on Acts chapter 13 to prepare ourselves on the front end to journey with Jesus and getting the gospel out. Well, the first thing I want you to see in this passage is this, is that you have to prepare your heart for hardship. Can you imagine being Paul? Just a few chapters ago in Acts chapter 9, this radical conversion, while he's on the way to capture Christians and to persecute them, he's radically changed by the power of God's grace, preaching the gospel to all these places. And, and the next thing you know, now he was on a road that, that when he was converted, now he's on a boat. And he says, hey, I'm just going to pour out my life. At one point, he says, like a drink offering. I'm going to pour out my life with one goal in mind to tell people about Jesus uh, and watch people respond. And there's, there's nothing that's more significant than that. That's why every single week we leave, we have you recite the Great Commission, say, hey, this is the most important thing in your life. This is the most important thing for you to keep in your mind as you approach the week. And so we end with the, the Great Commission. And so, but here's the reality. Have you noticed that with any endeavor in life that's going to have some kind of impact, there's always opposition built in? Listen, if you say, well, I don't know if that's true or not, then you know what I know about you? 
you've never gone to McDonald's and tried to order an ice cream cone. Amen? I'm not kidding. <laughs> a few months ago, Josie said, Dad, let's go get an ice cream. It took us four McDonald's to find one that's working. You're like, you pull up and there's that moment of unbelief. You're like, can I get a couple ice cream cones? And there's a little pause. And you're you know, praying and fasting right in that moment. Sir, our, sir, our ice cream machine is broken. What? Billions of people serve, not ice cream. Do you know there's actually an app you can download? I've not checked it out. There's an app you can download, and it tells you which ice cream machines are actively working at that point in time. Now, I don't know who created that. I don't know the spiritual beliefs. Can we all agree this morning? That person's going to heaven, all right? But in all seriousness, the old adage is true. Nothing great in life comes easy. That's true with exercise, that's true with getting out of debt, writing a book, parenting, making disciples, anything worth really doing, especially for God's kingdom, will be met with significant opposition. You have to settle that fact on the front end, not in the middle when it's hard, and you're wondering, is this even worth it? The hardships are going to come practically, they're going to come spiritually, and so not only navigating that practical reality, we have a very real and present spiritual enemy in Satan. So we live in a fallen world, so life is hard. Things don't go easy in in a fallen world, practically speaking, but then spiritually, we have a real active enemy. The Bible says that Satan, 1 Peter chapter 5, is roaming about seeking whom he may devour. The Bible says that his mission is to kill, seek, and destroy. So practically and spiritually, the journey and the work is going to be difficult. And so Paul's headed to share the gospel, and so what do we see in Paul's life? He encounters uh, here in Acts chapter 13. First off, Paul is abandoned by someone he loves. Now, there aren't too many people, like this morning, if I just said, hey, I'm going to get on a boat this afternoon, and I don't know where it's going. Who wants to go, right? Uh, There's not a lot of people getting on that boat. But if you find someone who says, hey, I'm in, I'm totally in, that person is a treasure. And so Paul has this treasure, this cherished companion in John Mark, but, but verse 13 tells us, that John Mark says at some point, he decides to bail out. Go back to verse 13. What's it say? Now Paul and his companions set sail. They came to Perga. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now we're not totally sure what happened or why, but there's a little clue. uh, Later in Acts chapter 15, uh, there's a little clue that there was some tension here. Uh, Because in Acts chapter 15, Barnabas, uh, always the encourager, wants John Mark to rejoin them. You know, hey, he's a good guy. Like, let's just, let's not be too hard, Paul. Let's just let him back in and join us. And Paul does not let him. Paul says, hey, fool me once, shame on me. Or shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Right? Paul says, nope. We, We did that. He bailed on me. And so he is not rejoining us in the journey is what Paul tells Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. And so the reality is simply this. When you're serving Jesus and desiring to make disciples for his glory, I just want you to understand this on the front end. Sometimes people leave in the middle of the journey. Not everyone who starts off the race will finish the race. And sometimes they're not genuinely converted. They give evidence of that. Sometimes they get discouraged. Sometimes they get let bitterness in their hearts. But sometimes people will walk away. And so one of the unique things about being pastoral, you know, sometimes people say, oh, pastoral ministry is so hard. Uh, Listen, every job's hard. There's some unique things about pastoral ministry, and one of the unique things is this. What I've discovered in the last 20 years is 
You can walk with people through the most difficult days of their life. You can reorient your schedule to meet them and and comfort them and come alongside and counsel them. You can pour hours and hours and hours into counseling them. But the very first time that you make a decision they disagree with, they're out like a scout on a new route, right? Like all of that pouring in and those kinds of things, like, like the first time, well, I don't agree with that, I'm leaving. And you must be thinking, well, being a pastor is so hard. Let, let, me, let me reframe that thought and invite you all into the pity party this morning, all right? Making disciples is hard. Sacrificially pouring your life into someone spiritually and having them walk away practically uh, is going to be hard. And it is hard going to happen. Listen, if people walked away from Jesus, and they did in John chapter 6, says that many of them walked with him no more. If people walked away and abandoned ship literally with the Apostle Paul here in Acts chapter 13, there will be people that you will pour your life into and at some point, for some reason, they'll walk away and sometimes they'll blame you for the reason as their departure. Now sometimes people leave and it's blessed subtraction. You know what I mean? But other times, it will crush you when people walk away. Let me make this as practical and as personal as I can. When you spend your life pouring into other people spiritually and serving them practically, you are going to have your hearts broken at some point. There are going to be times where you wonder, did I even make a difference in that person's life? Am I wasting my time with them? You're going to wonder if you could have done more, done something differently. And so on the front end, you have to be prepared for that so that you are not crushed on the back end. Now listen, I'm not talking about having a cynical view of people. You know, everybody lets you down, everybody disappoints. I had a guy in my first church, the most negative people I've been around. He said, I've just just come to a place where I expect so little people that I'm rarely disappointed. I thought, I bet you're a lot of fun at parties, right? That was his life motto. I'm I'm not talking about that. Listen, consider this. Jesus, with the full knowledge that Judas would betray him, walked with him for over three years. Right, So let's not be quick to cut people off and you know, wash our hands of them. But the reality is preparing our hearts spiritually to understand that sinful people do broken things. If I said, hey, God's called me to plant a church. And next week, and I, and I advertised the church plant, and I said, this church is only open to people who've quit going to church because they were hurt by someone in a church before. That's all who can come to this grand opening. Can I just tell you this? I'd have the largest grand opening in the history of church planners. The crowd the following week would be considerably smaller when I preached a sermon titled, It's Going to Happen Again, right? Paul's right-hand man up and leaves him. We don't know why, but it was clearly some, some tension here. Literally, jump ship, and it's so offensive to Paul that later Barnabas says, Hey, let's let him rejoin. Paul says, Absolutely not. He bailed on us. When I desperately needed him. And eventually John Mark is restored. We'll see that later in the book of Acts. But on the front end, it had to break Paul's heart. Listen, if you're going to pour yourself into people spiritually, listen, sinful people do broken things. And here's my counsel. Love them anyway. It's worth it. You know why? Because that's modeling the gospel. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me give you the Cunningham paraphrase. In while we were actively breaking God's heart, God gave his life on our behalf. Love him anyway. You've never wasted your life loving them in the name of Jesus Christ. Never. And so that's going to happen. So we have to prepare our hearts for that. Not only does John Mark leave Paul's side, but secondly, 
uh, Paul continually faces difficult circumstances. You know what I appreciate about the life of Paul? Paul's life shatters this myth that somehow obedience insulates me from hardship. As long as I'm faithful to the Lord, the Lord will be faithful to me and give me smooth sailing. Now, let me give you the right theology. As long as I'm faithful to the Lord, God will sustain me in the midst of hardship. And so right here in this chapter, we see the two main sources of spiritual encouragement that disciple makers, you, are going to face. Fickle people and hard circumstances. If I go back and survey every person over the years who've abandoned the church and bailed on the mission, uh, their reasons for doing that would usually fall in one of two categories. I'm not saying it's justifiable, but fall in one of two categories. Number one, I got hurt by some Christians. Or number two, I got bitter at God because life was so hard. And so there's a reason here in James chapter 1 when it talks about trials and the difficulties of life. You know what it says in James chapter 1? My brothers, uh, do not consider it a, a strange thing when you fall into various trials. Don't be surprised by that. Now, why does he say that in James chapter 1 describing trials? You know why he says that? Because we're surprised when it happens, right? Uh, I love First Peter chapter 4. It says, says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Listen to this. As though something strange were happening to you. He says life in a fallen world, trials are normative. It's normative. It's a part of the process that God uses to mold us and shape us. And in our brokenness, God, God desires to rebuild us and for us to turn towards him. So it's normative. And so Paul just over and over faces all these incredible hardships in the journey in verse 14 look what it says in verse 14 it says he came to Antioch in Pisidia now Antioch in Pisidia was about a hundred miles from from Perga it was a mountainous and treacherous journey on foot it was about 36 feet 100 feet above sea level so you can imagine the the terrain they would have had to climb and the hardships and all these steep hills listen I get winded going up the steps amen Jagged rocks, terrible heat, all that. And on top of all the physical difficulties, robbers waiting in the shadows for passerby to attack them. Antioch and Pisidia was also a, a Roman colony and probably most likely the place where the emperor lived. And it was a city filled with pagan people. Now, if I were Paul, I would say, hey, let's start off in some rural village that's got a base level of morality, right? Paul says, mm-mm. Let's go to the hardest place to get to geographically and let's go to a place filled with pagan worship. Why? Because Paul said, I want to spend my life preaching Christ where he is not known. And so what should we take note of is here is a man who's determined to get the gospel out no matter what it cost him personally. That is the secret sauce of Christianity. Personal commitment to the mission, not charisma, commitment. And so we see Paul just difficulty after difficulty throughout the book of Acts. We'll see this difficulty after Paul said, it doesn't matter. It's worth it. It doesn't matter. I've prepared myself. It's not going to be easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. Now, I'm completely opposed to legalism. I'm completely opposed to using false guilt to motivate people. But, but let me just lean in here for just a little minute. There is a good guilt that we used to call conviction. Anybody remember that word, conviction? We used to use that in church, right? 
And conviction is to our inner man what pain is to our outer man. It's saying, hey, if you don't go in the other direction, you're going to harm yourself. So, so God wrought conviction is God's tangible mercy uh, in our lives. And so what does this got to do with personal commitment to the mission despite, you know, hard, hardships and all those kind of things? Uh, here's a place where I'm just lean in directly, but, but pastorally, I don't want to be harsh, but I do want to be clear. And I hope that we're all convinced at this point in the series that God's plan A for, for making disciples, the only God-ordained institution in the New Testament, is the local church. Can we all agree with that at this point? You've learned that? We're plan A, and there is no plan B. That, that's been made clear from chapter 1 and on. Over and over we see this again. And so what does that mean practically? That means there's no such thing biblically where you can be committed to Christ in his mission and not be committed deeply to his church. That's not New Testament Christianity. But here's where I want to lean in a little bit. There's a trend I've noticed in church culture, and it's probably in the last 10 or 12 years I've been pastoring. I've watched this as families more and more often begin to schedule their church attendance around Little League instead of scheduling Little League around church attendance. Some of you grew up going to church five times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Tuesday night visitation, Saturday morning bus ministry. And I'm not advocating for that. But contrast that with just a few decades later now that in a megachurch, the average person attends one and a half to two times a month. And so this idea of getting up and going, oh, it's going to go, but it's raining out. When we pulled down our online, we had our online like most churches, and we pulled it down. We said, why? Because Corporate worship is a spiritual discipline. It's a high value. Uh, do you know this, that the very next week our attendance jumped by over 120 people in one week? And so, so I, again, I don't be legalistic, but, but here's what I'm getting at. It's hard to say with integrity that Jesus is first in our priorities when the church is last in our plans. It's hard to say that Jesus is first in our priorities when church is last in our plans because there is no such thing as disciple-making that is not connected to the local church. And so Paul's, Paul says, hey, it's going to be hard to live on mission, but it doesn't matter. I've settled that on the front end, and it's worth the cost of these hardships. Climbing steep hills, desolate heat, Pagan people, I'm all in. I made that decision on the front end, not on the weekend, to see what else was going on. And so here's the question I'll need to ask, listen, including me. Would people look at our lives and see a zeal for the Lord and his church? When people know us more for our political affiliations or sports team we root for, the hobbies we pursue, listen, there's a chance we've been distracted by all the world has to offer. And if we be consumed with the temporal to the point it crowds out our passion for the eternal, then listen, conviction is God's good gift of mercy in our lives to set us back on track and saying, hey, there's nothing wrong with these things inherently, but they're not nearly as important as the work of spreading the gospel. And let me just say this, total transparency. Uh, I've been deeply challenged by this series. I've been convicted the whole time as I've watched these spiritual leaders and how they've led and what they've sacrificed and how they've put their necks literally on the line to get the gospel out. You know what I get aggravated about? When I get it, it's getting cold, and my seat heater doesn't work. I'm like, oh, suffering. Right? I have to do better. I want to do better. And as your pastor, I want you to, be, to do better, to want to do better, to be deeply committed to the work, despite the hardships that are going to happen. That's what Paul's modeling for us. Paul says, hey, 
People are going to bail on you at some point. Keep going. You're going to face all kinds of practical difficulty of life in a fallen world. Keep going. It's worth it. But settle that on the front end, not in the midst of those heartbreaking and challenging experiences. That is not the time to wonder, is this worth it? And so the second thing I want you to see is this, is if you're going to continue the journey, the second thing you've got to do is prepare yourself for spiritual opportunities. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, makes his way into a synagogue on the Sabbath and sits down to the scriptures being read. And at some point, the rabbi turns to Paul and Barnabas in the crowd and asks them this question in verse 15. Look at verse 15. What's it say? Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Verse 16 says, so Paul stood up. Now, I'm deeply encouraged by that. You know why? Because I've led lots of testimonies where I've said, hey, I got anything to share, and crickets. You know what I'm talking about? And so this guy says, anybody got a word on their heart? And verse 16, basically Paul says, hey, I'm your huckleberry, right? And so what am I encouraging you to do? Listen, I'm encouraging you to be a huckleberry. I'm encouraging you to spend your life availing yourself to being trained and equipped to make disciples, that it's the most important job you'll ever have in all of your life, to put forth the effort to be spiritually equipped because when the moment arrives like it did for Paul, this wasn't some random thing like Paul's like, oh no, the Holy Spirit's going to give me something to say. No, he'd been preparing, training, waiting for this moment ever since he was converted. It's the same idea we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 that says this, always be prepared. How do, you, how, do you, how do you do that? Because you're training. You're not waiting until the opportunity arises to, to speak some spiritual truth. You're training. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so I want you, here's what I want you to hear me this morning. All right, everybody look up here. The deep things of God are not just for pastors. Listen, if the hope of the world is rests in the hands of the clergy, we're in trouble because there's not enough of us to go around. But here's the good news. All throughout the book of Acts, what we see is the gospel spreading as a grassroots movement. Ordinary people like you and I, God calling him into service and, and being ready to speak at a moment's notice and to spread the gospel going forward. You know, one of the great tragedies that we see in our current culture is, man, if we could just get a Christian politician in the right place and the gospel would spread like wildfire. Or if a celebrity or athlete would get saved, they've got this huge platform, the gospel would spread like wildfire. Here's the problem with that. That's completely contrary to the spread of the gospel in the New Testament. It was mostly poor Jewish converts to Christianity that early on that spread the gospel like wildfire. And so if the movement's going forward, it's solely dependent on, on just a handful of people. Listen, but it's not. The good news is it's on the church. You're the church. Imagine if I came to you and said, hey, I've got an opportunity for, for you to participate in the most incredible assignment you can ever take on your life. I mean, life-changing. It will literally change the course of history. And you said, hey, count me in. That sounds exciting, right? There's a story that when... Steve Jobs was recruiting the executive, one of the leading executives of Pepsi to come over and be a part of Apple. The guy was pushing back, and I've got it made at Apple, I've got it made at Apple, I've got it, or Pepsi, Pepsi, Pepsi. And finally, Steve Jobs, in his directness that you know, he's become famous for, said this. He said, let me ask you a question. 
He said, do you want to spend the rest of your life making sugar water or do you want to change the world? Gone. And so, so if I came to you and said, hey, you can be a part of changing the world, but I said, there's one catch. There's some training involved. Would you be like, oh, <laughs> I'm not in then. No, thank you. No, you'd say, of course there's training involved. So, so what am I getting at? Here's the reality. Listen, Jesus has invited you into the most life-changing journey of joining him in the movement of getting the gospel out to your neighbors and to the nations. And, and so what does that mean? That means on your end, you have to take advantage of, of spiritual opportunities to get equipped. Here's what I cannot do. Listen, our staff can, I can preach my guts out every week. And pour out my heart, study. Our staff can create environments, opportunities for you to get equipped and, and learn and grow and all those kinds of things. But here's what I, I cannot do, no pastor can do. I cannot produce spiritual appetite in your hearts. I can use emotionalism to stir you up, but that usually wears off somewhere in the parking lot. Right? You know how I know that's true? You can have an incredible experience and, oh, it's moved to tears and the preaching was so powerful. And yet on the way home, you can threaten to kill everybody in the car on the way home. Am I right? Don't judge me. Doesn't happen to you too. You know why? Because emotional experiences don't lead to lasting heart change. Only the gospel does that. It's Jesus that reorients the affections of our hearts, not emotionalism. And so I can't produce spiritual appetite in you. So there's no question that God uses ordinary people to keep the gospel movement going forward. Here's the question. Are you training for that moment? Are you leveraging your time and your schedule to be equipped that when someone, like that in Acts chapter 13 verse 15 says, does anyone in the room have any spiritual words to share? You can say, oh, I've been waiting and training for this moment. You know what I've come to find out over the years is that different people have different thoughts on what my job should be. It's very interesting. But here's the good news. Scripture's already settled it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 says that our job, pastor's job, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so that's what we're trying to create systems and opportunities and, and rhythms and routines so that you can get equipped. And so the question has to be, are you taking advantage of those things? Now you say, well, most likely, I'm not going to be in a Jewish synagogue one day and a rabbi says, you got anything you want to share? <laughs> right? Most likely that what's going to happen is you're going to have a friend who says, hey, I'm wrestling with something. I've got something going on in my life. And I know that you're a Christian. Can I ask you a question? And in that moment, you cannot dial a pastor. In that moment, you cannot say, uh, let, me, let me Google that real quick, right? In that moment, you say, hey, I don't know all the answers, but here's what I do know. And let me share this with you and walk with you in there. And so what we see here is Paul's preparing his life for opportunities like this. And we see this all throughout the book of Acts. These, these, aren't, these aren't random things like Paul's like, well, I just was there and the Holy Spirit filled my mouth. We see that at some point in the New Testament. But here Paul's just been, he's, I'm ready, I'm waiting. And so what does it look like practically? And, and we've got to hustle. So two things we see in Acts chapter 13. Uh, very practical. Number one, so Paul launched in the sermon uh, beginning in verse 17 on. Uh, verse 17, what do we see Paul modeling in his sermon? Number one, he meets people where they are spiritually. 
The missions work, we call this contextualization. There, there's a, there can be a danger to contextualize so much that you compromise the message. But Paul started with where they were spiritually. Look at, look at verse 16. What's he say? So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. Look, notice how he dressed him. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he goes on and just rattles off all these uh, historical things that they would have been familiar with. Why was he doing that? Because he wanted to start off where they were spiritually. Paul didn't get up and say, heathens, lend me your ear, right? He didn't get up and say, hey, the, if you listen closely, you'll notice that the hellhounds are right outside the door, right? Paul says, you men of Israel, you who fear God, and then he goes on and tells, speaks their language and all these kind of things they would have resonated with. But it doesn't stop there. He meets them there, but he moves on to some harder truths. Uh, listen to verses 38 and 40. They would have prided themselves, Jewish men, to keep the law. Look what Paul says. So he starts off where they were spiritually, verse 16. But look what he gets to in verses 38 through 40. Verses 38 says this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What he's saying is, uh, your sins aren't forgiven by keeping the law. Verse 39, and by him anyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed of from the law of Moses. You know what he's saying there? You're wasting your life spiritually pursuing religion. The message of religion is due and the message of the gospel is done. And Paul says you're wasting your time. Verse 40, beware therefore lest what you said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. And so Paul gets the hard truths of the gospel, but he starts off meeting them where they were. But so here's the second thing I'll give you practically, is in your desire to make disciples, here's the second thing. One, start where people are. Start where they are. Wherever they are, spiritually, start right there. But secondly, here's the thing. Always, always get to Jesus. Listen, it's not enough to relate to people. It's not enough to meet physical needs. If all we do is meet physical needs, and listen, we're nothing more than a government agency or a collection of do-gooders, but the reality is we're missionaries with a message to share. We meet needs, do good works to gain an audience to proclaim the good news. And so Paul makes a beeline to Jesus. Verse 23, Paul says, God has brought to Israel, that's his crowd, right, in the synagogue, Paul has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he's promised. He declares the name of Jesus openly. Verses 28 through 30, Paul communicates the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the gospel. And then Paul begins to land the plane by telling this in verse 32. He says, and we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, Paul starts where they are spiritually, but he makes a beeline to the cross. And so in your efforts to live on mission, you meet people where they are, and you, you may meet practical needs, and you serve in practical ways, and collect coats, and gloves, and scarves, and all those kinds of things. And those are wonderful bridge builders, but the goal is to, to get a foot in the door. Why? So that I can make a beeline to Jesus. And Paul's saying, hey, this is what it's all about, so let's model that always Always get to do it. Listen, we're not do-gooders. We're not some rotary club or some government agency just passing out resources to people. We're missionaries with a message to proclaim, and his name is Jesus. Now, we're out of time. Oh, God, thank God, right? Uh, 
But let me just encourage you with, with one more thing so you don't get discouraged by your efforts to tell people about Jesus. Because I'm just being as transparent as I can. Uh, there, there are many, many times in trying to make disciples, more often I'm, I'm discouraged than I am encouraged. I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, you, know, you need encouragement. Like, listen, I don't mean that at all. I'm just telling you it's hard. It's hard. And if you're going to make disciples, it's hard. And so this should be encouraging and incredibly freeing. And, and here it is. Here's what I want to encourage you with. As you seek to push against hardships, you seek to continue on when people abandon the mission. Uh, listen, let me just tell you this. It's a freeing truth. You're not responsible for the results. You know, the most freeing days of my life is finally when I got the, the realization that I don't have any control over how many people show up at church on the weekend. I was so excited. Listen, I got an extra coney that day at Skyline. I just thought, right? I have control over how prayed up I am, how studied I am, how clear I am. Like, I don't have any control whether people show up or not. You don't have any, you're not responsible for the response. Paul says later, Paul says in the, in the New Testament, Paul says, hey, I planted the seed of the gospel. Apollos watered, but, but God gave the increase. There's not a more skilled missionary on the planet than Paul. But, but listen to how this story ends. In verse 48, it says, the Gentiles believed. And we're tempted to say, well, it's because Paul was so gifted, right? I'm not as gifted as Paul. Not at all. Verse 50 says, the Jews, though, drove them out of the city. You see, you're not responsible for the condition of the soil. You're the sower. And I love verse 51. Here's what verse 51 says. Drive them out of the city. Reject them. Here's what verse 51 says. Listen to the Living Bible paraphrase. But they shook off the dust from their feet against the town, here it is, and went on to the city of Iconium. Church, don't miss this. Even the greatest missionary who ever lived had one strategy. You know what it was? Faithfulness. He says, I'm going to shake the dust off my feet. I'm going to go to the next place. I'm going to preach the gospel again. Some are going to receive it. Some are going to reject it. I'm just going to keep going. Church, be encouraged. In the economy of God, Faithful people are more important than gifted people. Faithful people are more important than gifted people. God in his sovereignty has chosen to use ordinary people to carry the gospel forward. So here's my thought. Might as well be you. Might as well be you. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, what are you trusting in for the forgiveness of your sins? That's the most important question anyone will ever ask you. And some of you got a five-year plan, a ten-year plan. What, what's your hundred-year plan? And as you think about that, there's only two answers to that question. One is, you're trusting in something you've done. Your good works, your moral life, your general belief in God or higher power, your attendance at church, the fact that you got baptized, walked down an aisle at some point. You're trusting in something you've done. But the right answer is, 
I'm trusting in what Jesus has done on my behalf. And so the first question I'll ask you is this. Is there a time, is there a place, is there a season in your life where you became convicted of your sins, confessed them before a holy God, declared that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for your sins, was buried and rose the third day, and you received Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins as your Savior and Lord. And if the answer is no or I'm not sure, listen, right now you can receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Right now in your seat with your head bowed, would you just pray by faith and acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your need for a Savior, acknowledge your need that Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins. Would you surrender your life to Jesus Christ right now and be saved? Would you do that right now? If you've never done that or you're not sure if you've done that. Head still bowed, eyes still closed. Many of you in the room have already been saved. Many of you know your stories. I just want to pray for you specifically this morning. If in your journey of trying to follow Jesus, if you're at a place where the hardships of life in a fallen world or the hurt from people have brought you to the place where if you're honest this morning you just, you just kind of feel like giving up and wondering is it even worth it? Is it even worth loving people pouring my life into them spiritually? And if that's you this morning listen I've been there many times if that's you this morning all I want to do is pray for you. We just say, hey, that's me. Honest before God. We just raise your hand up and say, that's me. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Let me just pray for you specifically. God, I pray for every hand that was raised. I pray for those maybe that should have raised their hands, but it was too painful to even acknowledge. God, I pray that we would become deeply convinced that to love people when it seems like it's having no impact is to, in fact, model the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, God, just as your kindness led us to repentance, I pray that we would continue to love people who don't love Jesus in return. God, I pray that we would look at people we encounter this very week, not as projects, but as fellow image bearers whose lives have deep value and dignity. And so God, help us to settle on the front end through what we've learned in Acts chapter 13, that, that our hearts are going to be broken by people. There's going to be hardship of life in a fallen world. But God, there'll come a day we see Jesus face to face and it will be worth it and so God by faith help us to live in light of that day to come encourage us we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ because we can